Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, conversations about careers in meteorology and beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Hurst-Warner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Kelsey Dirksen, a space systems engineer and satellite operator at Planet in San Francisco, California. Welcome, Kelsey. Thanks very much for joining us. We're happy to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Kelsey, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in science? Absolutely. In terms of what sparked my interest in science, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. I thought being an astronaut would be the coolest job in the world, and I'm still actively working towards achieving that goal, hopefully sometime in the future. Um, my educational background, I have a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering, space systems design, and I also have a master's in electrical and computer engineering, focusing on machine learning. And in particular, I did my research focusing on machine learning applications for space weather research. And this fall, I'm starting at the University of Oxford's Autonomous Intelligent Machines and Systems PhD program. Nice. So astronaut, did you ever get to do any of the simulations? I haven't, no. Uh, I definitely have on my list, you know, getting my private pilot's license and doing things like a zero-G flight. And those are things definitely I want to achieve at some point, but I haven't haven't done any simulations to date yet. So at what age did the the astronaut bug strike you? I would say probably when I was around 10 or 11, I always thought, again, space was one of the coolest things ever. And I wanted to, to go to the moon or to go to Mars. And when I was in high school around grade 11 or 12, so when I was probably 16 or 17, I really started to think about how I could make that dream a reality and what that would mean to, you know, what courses I should take in high school and what programs I should apply to when going to university. And so that's kind of when my journey really began to this career trajectory. And from kind of age 10, you said, or so to now, has the definition of what an astronaut is changed for you at all? A little bit. I think I used to be so focused on astronaut being the absolute only career path for me or the only way that I'll be, you know, quote unquote, successful in my career. But that's definitely not true. And especially not in the space industry. It takes, you know, engineers, scientists, business people, policy, lawmakers, a whole variety of folks to in order to make space missions happen. And so I'm just happy to kind of be along for the ride and to have, you know, a career in space being only only 26. And so when I think of an astronaut, I think of someone leashed to a craft floating out in space, maybe repairing a satellite or kind of just out there. I see someone flicking a switch, which is igniting the rocket, and then they get sent up. You know, these are the kind of things you see in movies. What are some more like unexpected parts of the job or ways that are more unique to you about what it would mean to be an astronaut versus like those kind of more like cultural touchstone images that we get from a lot of like popular movies and kind of base assumptions of what the job is like? I think I had a unique experience in my master's in that the program I was a part of had a really strong geology department and in particular planetary science and geology department. And so I learned a lot about what it means for space missions and how much astronauts really need to know about geology and that sort of background in order to be effective 
you know, scientists on the ground when they're reaching new planets like Mars or going to to the moon. And actually, one of my professors, uh, he trains the Canadian astronauts uh, in the high Arctic and does analog missions with them to train them about the basics of geology, which I think is super interesting because I've always been interested in geology and I didn't realize how much knowledge you really need to know as an astronaut in order to, you know, be able to make these decisions when you're deciding which rock to pick up on Mars or what sample is important and, and relevant. Right. So you're not just in the middle of space, you're interacting with with a lot of um, earthly science in a way that translates into what rock to pick up. So uh, you've told us a bit about what schools you've gone to are there any other um, extracurricular opportunities or things you did outside of the normal curriculum classwork that you found to be beneficial to getting to where you are now in your space systems profession? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, extracurriculars was a massive part of being able to, you know, get the job that I am in currently now because I didn't do any sort of internships, which is sort of the norm when you're doing an engineering degree, a part of your undergrad. I didn't do any sort of technical internships. So I got a lot of my technical expertise out of the extracurriculars I did. Um, a friends of mine uh, and myself, we founded the Carleton Planetary Robotics Team. So this is a team of engineering students and science students that build a Mars rover every year. And we compete at the University Rover Challenge, which is hosted at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah. And so that was an amazing experience because you get to really start from nothing, just a design that you want to, to make, to building it, to operating the rover, to competing with other students and learning from other students. And that gave me a lot of experience in just rover technology in general. And I think that really helped me in order to get my internship at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, in which I was actually working on Mars rover technology. So it really, it started as a student group and kind of an idea, and it ended up being the reason why I think I was able to spend that time at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And I've also done quite a bit of volunteering in my university. So a part of the Mechanical and Aerospace Society at Carleton University, also a part of the Graduate Planetary Science Society during my master's as well. And I was also involved with the Space Generation Advisory Council. So this is the world's largest network of students and young professionals that are interested in space. And we do events every single year. Our flagship event is called the Space Generation Congress. And we're actually, we have applications open for delegates between June 1st and 30th, 2021. So if, if folks are listening and it's within that time range, please do apply. And I think being able to build my network and learn from other students has really opened doors and opportunities for me that I otherwise wouldn't have because I learned a lot from the people I've worked with. So a couple of follow-up questions. That's great that you found all these opportunities outside of kind of the internship path. It was more of if I can't find an internship or I don't want to, I'll make one instead. So I love this, I love this rover contest. So sort of like a very high-tech boxcar derby. How do you test one team's rovers against another team's? What are the sort of the standards for, um, you know, if one short circuits, if one can't cross a boulder or has, has trouble navigating a certain type of terrain, what... What is the that final get together when everyone's rovers are in the same place? What do you guys talk about or do there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a bunch of different sort of tasks and different competitions, a part of the overall University Rover Challenge series. So for example, terrain traversal. So having your rover drive across a different course of rocks and boulders and different types of sand. So whether it's compacted or 
um, more loose and that your wheel might be able to get stuck or something like that is, is one of the, the competitions or challenges we had. We also had a science task where we were tasked with having our rover drive out into a field and this was all remotely operated so we had to use the actual cameras on the rover to navigate we weren't able to see where our rover was going um, and then we had to collect a rock sample or drill in the sand and collect that sample and then do any sort of onboard science analysis with the instruments we had on board the rovers like soil moisture detection or ph level for example uh, we also had an autonomous traversal task where essentially you're clicking go or start on your rover and has to navigate through a path without any sort of input from the operators. So there's a variety of different tasks that we had a part of the, the challenge and it changes a little bit every single year. Um, and that's way you can compare, you know, between teams who gets the most points based on who performs the best, whether that be the fastest or gets the greatest, you know, science objectives done or is able to traverse autonomously the farthest, things like that. Well, not only does that sound super fun, but it gave you so much great experience. So I'm, I'm assuming that all those extracurricular activities helped you get your first job in the field. And, and what was that first job and, and how did you end up where you are now? Absolutely. So I guess my first technical job, I would say, was my internship at the Paris Observatory. So although it's not necessarily, you know, a full-time job post-grad, this was my first real like technical work experience. And how I got this position was I actually did a short course at the Paris Observatory. So this is Paris, France. I know there's there's Paris in, in the United States as well. I did a short course there. It's a one-week summer school on natural space risks. So it was focusing on space debris, near-Earth objects, as well as space weather. And I had no previous experience in any of these sort of areas of space, but I was interested in it. And I did the one week summer course. And after the course was finished, I just emailed the two lead teachers of the program and said, hey, can I come back next summer for an internship? I really enjoyed my time. And they ended up agreeing. And that's kind of how I've started my first job really in, in the technical field. And that internship really changed I think the course of my career it was a huge turning point for me because it introduced me to space weather, which I had previously no experience with. I was able to travel abroad, which I had never previously had an experience with. You know, especially as a student, those things are are quite challenging due to financials. And that internship shaped what my master's thesis ended up being, which was focusing machine learning on space weather and specifically coronal mass ejection detection. And then from that sort of machine learning experience, I got my internship at the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, which was again using machine learning for rover technology. And then from that internship, because I had developed, you know, the, the programming skills and the data analytics skills, I was able to get my job now as a full-time space systems engineer at Planet. And so I really think that observatory internship was kind of the first snowball that, that really cascaded my career to, to what it is now. So how did you find out about the the workshop in the first place? Was it listed at school at, you know, or from an advisor? So I, I had what I, I guess I call a mentor or someone that I really looked up to um, at Carleton University. He was a few years older than me. So he was an upper year student and he actually had sent me a link to, to this summer program. It was the first time it had ever run as well. So he didn't know anything about it, but he knew that I was really passionate about space sciences and that I wanted to be an astronaut. And so he had sent it to me and said, Kelsey, this sounds like something you might be interested in. I don't know much about it, but I think you should apply. And so I really relied on him a lot for guidance and 
just career advice and education advice because I looked up to him and I thought that, you know, he was on the trajectory to success. And I would strongly encourage any students or young professionals listening to also kind of reach out to to upper year students or upper year management to kind of seek out that mentorship, because that was definitely one of the reasons why I've been able to be successful in my career was through mentorship and uh, listening to, to those older than me about, you know, what to do or ideas of, of what to do. Yeah, we hear that a lot. Mentoring is is key. Absolutely. Is the science culture in France feel different than the American science establishment in any way that you could elucidate us on? Yeah, I think, I mean, living in Europe and working in Europe is very, very different from North America. I think a lot of it just comes down to the work-life balance culture. I think in North America, we're very much you know, live to work oriented or, or tend to be, whereas Europe is more work to live and they enjoy, you know, spending time outside of work. And that really translated into my relationships with my supervisors at the observatory as well. We're still um, very good friends and colleagues and we still continue to research. Um, we're working on papers together on space weather and space debris research. Um, and so I would think those are two very stark differences I notice, especially now I work in Silicon Valley area and the Bay Area where it's, you know, very work oriented. But that would be the biggest difference I found is that work is not your life <laughs> in Europe, at least. Um, whereas it, it can tend to be that way a little bit more in, in North America, what I found, although in California, people are, are pretty relaxed. So those ocean vibes. Was the the workspace uh, in Paris more multilingual? Um, did you happen to pick up different European languages or other languages from other parts of the world, um, being a little bit more removed from sort of the, I guess, American bubble or the English bubble in the United States? Oui, parlez-vous français? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Uh, luckily for me, because I didn't speak fluent French when I got the internship, that I could do any sort of science work in, in English and our papers we were writing and things like that are all delivered in English. I guess I can also say too, the, the summer program I went to was delivered in English, which was nice. And so work was in English, but in terms of casual conversation at lunch or coffee breaks or things like that, that was normally purely in French. So I definitely picked up a lot of French while I was there. And it's more so just trial by fire, right? It's either I'm going to learn French and be able to communicate with different colleagues and meet people, or I'm going to be struggling um, because I can only speak English. And I think that was definitely an eye-opener for me as well. Living in Europe is most people speak multiple languages and it's not, you know, quote unquote, special to speak multiple languages, where, whereas I come from, even though I come from Canada, where we do have two official languages, unfortunately, I'm not fully fluent in French, but that is something I'm, I'm actively working towards since I still do work with the Paris Observatory quite a bit and, and spend time over there. It's just nice to be able to speak the, the native language if you can. Wonderful. So we've made it to, you've arrived in Silicon Valley. You're a space systems engineer. You work in satellite operations. What does that mean? What's a day on the job like in this aerospace environment? How many satellites are you working with? What do those satellites do? What do you do? Are you working? Are you are you welding those satellites together? Are you designing the code that's running them? Tell me about what your day-to-day -day job is like so someone else can imagine if that's the type of job they'd like to hold. Absolutely. 
Every day in satellite operations is very different, which makes the job exciting because there's never never a dull moment in satellite operations. And if it's ever a quiet day, it's kind of nice. You could take a little break. Um, so day to day, it really varies. But at a high level, I'm responsible for the overall health and safety and productivity of the Dove satellite constellation from Planet. So at Planet, our Dove constellation, the goal or the mission of Planet's Dove constellation is to image the entire Earth every single day. And the idea is that we can then use that imagery to assess global change to be actionable and make impactful change through being able to observe the Earth over time in a way that it's never previously been done before. And so I'm responsible for hundreds of satellites. I'm on a team of nine operators with a new one coming. So total is 10 operators for hundreds of satellites. So a lot of my job is writing code that runs in space, which is always really cool, um, that essentially automates the operations of these satellites. Because there are so many satellites and so few operators, uh, it's really necessary that we can rely on automations to do a lot of the work for us. So for example, if a satellite voltage for the computer is low, that will trigger an alarm and it will trigger a process for the satellite to run a task to be able to kind of mitigate that problem. Our team is split into two. So we have half of our team in San Francisco and the other half in Berlin. So we almost have 24-hour operations because during their daytime is our nighttime and vice versa, which is nice. And so, yeah, a lot of my job is writing Python code to automate operations. I also do a lot of data analytics. So I mentioned my job is to make sure the satellites are healthy and productive. And the way that we assess that is through gathering spacecraft telemetry and different metrics and pieces of information from the satellites that they downlink and create either visualizations or different reports that essentially give an output of how well is my satellite performing today? How much data has it downlinked? How many pictures did it take? Are all of the subsystems operating correctly? Is there anything that's out of family? And that's kind of at a very high level what, what I'm responsible for. I was just going to ask, you know, about shift work because, you know, you have to monitor these things 24 hours a day. And what a great idea to have half the team in Berlin so that nobody has to like do these crazy overnights. So that that must be that. I mean, that is like a definite positive to that job. Absolutely. I think it's one of the really nice things about sort of like the new space era and really adopting automation in satellite operations is that it's not necessary for someone to be on call 24-7 and that our satellites can almost take care of themselves in a way. Of course, there are anomalies and different problems that come up in which operator intervention is necessary. And of course, that happens all the time. But it's not like I need to you know, wake up at 3 a.m. in order to make sure the satellite isn't going to crash into the earth. That sort of thing doesn't happen, which is really nice. We do have rotating on call. So once every week, um, a different operator will be responsible for if there are any sort of on-orbit anomalies that really need uh, operator intervention, they'll be on call. But again, that's not during the evenings. That would just be during your workday and on the weekends as well to do a full satellite check-in. So we have one operator responsible for checking in on the entire fleet every day. It takes about an hour to two hours and just making sure that there are no satellites that are sort of acting out of family or any sort of on-orbit anomalies that need to be assessed. So you said um, every day is a little different. What's What do you like the most about the job? 
I think because every day is different, that's one of the things I really like about the job is that it's never a dull moment and that I'm constantly learning things is really cool, especially as someone that's really early in their career. I think also what's particular to Planet and likely more so related to the startup space is that you get to really contribute and know that your work is impactful because you have such a small team. So for example, I've been at Planet for just over a year now. And in January of this year, we launched our latest flock of satellites. We launched 48 Super Doves, um, a part of the Transporter 1 SpaceX mission. And myself and another colleague of mine on the Berlin team, we were both responsible for the commissioning of these satellites. So that is the process from... Right after we launch the satellites, we deploy them into space and then we detumble them to make sure they're not spinning too fast. And we deploy their solar panels and get them ready to start taking pictures. And myself and another colleague were responsible for that. And both of us had only been at Planet for for a year, which I think is really amazing that we've got the opportunity to do that so early in our careers where I know that normally it would take, you know, decades potentially to be able to have that sort of responsibility. So that's one of my favorite parts is that I know for sure the work that I'm doing is is making a difference. That's such a great job. You must love it when somebody asks you, what do you do for a living? And you're like, oh, yes, I get to talk about this cool job that I have. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I really do love my job. Do you know how long Planet has been around? Has the, Have they always been in this um, same field or... Yeah, so Planet was founded in 2010 uh, by a group of ex-NASA scientists, and they've been having the same mission ever since its inception, which was to image the entire Earth every single day. And we've had, I'm going to probably not have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we've had over 400 satellites deployed, um, 30 launches. Um, We've had a large growth in the past few years, and we're continuing to grow, which is really exciting. And yeah, it's only been... Uh, just just over a decade since since Planet was formed. Great. So uh, we've talked about lots of exciting things. What's the most challenging thing that you'd want someone to know if they dropped into your job tomorrow that they might not anticipate? Ooh, that they might not anticipate. I think it's similar to what I said was my favorite part of the job, which is that it's always different. So there's no sort of busy work um, to to put it to put it lightly. I guess. Um, you know, there's always different problems that are arising and it's super interesting, but it also can be extremely challenging. There's definitely not a lot of days where I can, you know, just kind of have something up on my on my monitor and be typing away. Like I'm going to be probably actively problem solving and, you know, operating these spacecraft every single day, which is super exciting. And I'm extremely thankful that it's my job. But it's also, of course, kind of a high stress environment because, you know, you are responsible ultimately for these satellites operating. Um, and so, you know, it, it can be a little stressful at times to know I am the, the person responsible for operating this specific spacecraft. But at the same time, we have an extremely supportive team that's a wide variety of backgrounds and experience levels at Planet and they're willing to support you. So a lot of it might be self-induced stress on my end of being a little mixed with imposter syndrome. Um, but either way, it's enjoyable. Even the even the quote-unquote difficult parts are, are extremely enjoyable. So it's remembering that you're uh, behind the wheel, you know, you're driving a vehicle, so to speak, in the same way that you don't, you don't want to fall asleep at the wheel because there's a there's something else going on. It's kind of a similar feeling with with the way you're attached to the satellite. 
Exactly. Yeah. I still remember the day I sent my first command to a satellite and I was so worried I was going to break something. I thought for sure <laughs> I was going to, I was doing something wrong. You're going to crash the satellite. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be the single person responsible for ending planet's mission. But of course it was fine. And, you know, nothing that I would, I would send up would, would immediately you know crash the satellites into each other or anything like that. But I still remember it was a very stressful time, but super exciting. And I, I wrote it down. I don't have the date on me, but I, I wrote it down the day I did it so that I'd always remember the first time I sent a command to space. So I want to go back to um, the internship that you had in Paris. You said you had not learned much about space weather until then. And if a student, you know, right now is interested in space weather, what types of courses or, um, you know, extracurricular activities would you suggest that they get into in order to pursue that type of career? I would say they should absolutely look into attending the AMS annual meeting. That was one of my first experiences at a sort of space weather focused conference or really anything related to what AMS has. It has a you know weather, climate, anything related to AMS and, and meteorology is a great resource. I would also honestly don't underestimate the power of Google. I did a lot of Googling to figure out opportunities specific to what I was interested in. So I would really just enter, you know, space systems, student workshop or things like that. I know the space weather workshop is hosted every year as well. Um, so I would definitely encourage students to take advantage of those types of free workshops or workshops that are more accessible with price for, for students and things like that. Um, I know for, for example, the space weather conference that's hosted every year at the AMS annual meeting, I help out with organizing that and we're working on also developing different tutorial sessions um, in it, as well as different, I guess, lecture sessions or, or plenary sessions so that students can really gain these technical skills to be able to learn more about, you know, what skills are relevant for the space weather community, but also just, you know, have a, have a stronger resume and CV when they are applying to these types of jobs. So what about um, like a major or certain coursework? I know, I don't think, well, there might be, but I don't think there's a major specifically in space weather. Would, would someone just um, major in meteorology or atmospheric science or aerospace, astrophysics? Like what would you suggest that would get them the same type of experience? I think it really depends on what they're interested in. I think at the end of the day, you should make sure that whatever you're studying, you're interested in. So for example, my degrees are in aerospace engineering and electrical and computer engineering, which maybe when you hear that, you know, at first you wouldn't think that that would relate to space weather at all, but I do still, you know, research with the Paris Observatory and, and do research in that vein, although I don't have, you know, a meteorology degree or an atmospheric science degree. I think that regardless of the program that you're in, you can kind of make those opportunities for yourself. And so I think, relevant skills that would be particular to space weather research would definitely be anything related to sort of data analytics, um, computer programming, it doesn't have to be Python, but you know, anything related to sort of being able to aggregate data and visualize it and communicate it in a way that you're able to assess the scientific objective that you want to assess. I think those are definitely skills that you can get regardless of the program that you're in. And I would definitely strongly encourage folks not to be worried that they're in the wrong program because there's always opportunity to, you know, curate your career to be what you want to be. And so just gaining those skills like data analytics and programming were really huge for me to be able to be successful in the career that I'm in and in the space weather area that I'm in. And so I definitely would encourage students to focus on those topics. 
let's back up a bit and talk about a little bit more philosophical, the, the professional journey that you've gone on. And um, if you had a chance to maybe speak to a collection of recent college undergraduates at their graduation ceremony, and you're there to help set them up for success, what is a professional journey? What does that mean to you? What have we not asked you that you really want to make sure people know? I think at the end of the day, it's really important to know that no path is linear, no matter how far in advance you try to plan something, we can never account for things that will come up or different opportunities that might come up or rejections that might happen or job offers that might happen that you weren't necessarily expecting. And so it's important to be open to as many opportunities as possible. I think that's something that I've really taken to heart is that I've applied to probably hundreds of different opportunities, you know, between job applications, short courses, um, you know, graduate schools, things like that over the over the past few years of, of my early career. And I've just tried to apply to anything I found interesting. And, you know, I, I take the rejections in stride. Um, I try not to take anything too personally because it's all kind of part of the process and a part of the journey. And, and that perseverance overall is really, really important. And, I know for sure I recognize that applying for jobs and and starting your career can definitely be quite daunting, but it really just starts with that first application and you're not going to get what you don't apply for. So you might as well just apply for it and, and see what happens, right? That's kind of my biggest sort of life motto is just apply for it anyways. And if you get rejected, that's okay, but you might not. And that's what happened with me at Planet. I didn't know anyone at the company. I thought it was a really cool mission that Planet had. I thought it was a really cool company. And so I I applied and this is how I got my job there. I didn't necessarily have to know anyone to, to get in. And I think that's something that might be a little misunderstood is that folks think they they have to have a you know really huge network or they have to know someone to get in there, but it's not necessarily the case. And I think don't count yourself short and don't count yourself out. So you mentioned... Um the trajectory to get to where you are now. So now that you're in the position that you're in, you had mentioned the AMS annual meeting. Um, are there any other professional development opportunities that um, you take into consideration, any workshops or anything through work, your work that would um, you know, fund any of those? Yeah, so I'm very fortunate in that Planet is extremely supportive of career development and they have been since the beginning. I had approached my my manager last fall and let her know that I wanted to apply to PhD programs. And the first thing she said was, how can Planet support you? And what do you need from Planet in order to support you to do that? So I was really thankful for that. And I, and I didn't I didn't have to worry that, you know, my manager was going to be upset with me. They're, they only want the best for me, which I'm, I'm really happy about. And I think, I mean, one of the biggest sort of professional development and career development things that I'm involved in is the Space Generation Congress, which is um, hosted this fall, both online and in person. And Planet are sponsoring this year. And I'm also the manager. So I'm, you know, responsible for hosting the event and organizing it. And it's a way for like-minded individuals, a part of the space industry between the ages of 18 and 35, regardless of your background, but definitely related to space weather and meteorology to come together and share ideas. Um, and so, yeah, that's one of the biggest things from my side related to sort of professional development. And I've been very lucky that Planet has a part of their sort of benefits program with their employees is that they encourage career development and encourage folks to go to workshops and do things like this podcast and, and things like that. That's great. It's great to hear that you're not uh, having to plan your PhD in secret. <laughs> you can do it uh, in the open and with the support of your 
employer. So I'm aware you're also a member of the AMS Committee on Space Weather. That's a volunteer group. Um, maybe you found out about it at the AMS annual meeting, but I'd like to hear it uh, from you, how you joined that committee. And then what is the mission of that committee and, and what do you do when you're um, attending a board meeting for them? Absolutely. So I did find out about the Science and Technology Committee or STAC, as we call it, on space weather at the AMS annual meeting in 2018. I didn't know much about the AMS in general, but I had written a paper or created a poster related to space weather research I had been doing at the observatory. And I found out about the AMS annual meeting. I thought it would be a great place for me to sort of present this work. And I had met the two co-chairs at that conference when I was doing my poster presentation and they had invited me to join the Space Weather Committee after seeing my poster presentation, which was really fantastic because I had very little uh, experience in, in the space weather community and especially related to the North American space weather community as all of my research had been done in France. And so I didn't know a lot of folks on this side of the pond. Um, and the mission of the Space Weather Committee is to essentially we curate a comprehensive and diverse program for the AMS annual meeting um, for the Space Weather Conference. So related to all facets of the space weather field, whether that be education and outreach, machine learning applications for space weather, new instrumentation for space weather, um, the different relative government agencies and their outlook on the future of space weather research. And so our job is to kind of curate this program so that folks can present their work and learn more about space weather at the AMS annual meeting. And there had been some um, talk in the past about possibly creating a certification for space weather. And I'm not sure if your committee is still considering that, but um, we do have options now where organizations and groups can um, submit proposals for new certifications. So uh, it would be great if uh, the committee would consider that in the future. Absolutely. I'll definitely bring it up at our, our next board meeting. We are looking at this year as well, offering different tutorial sessions, a part of the AMS programming or AMS annual meeting programming, um, like a introduction to machine learning for space weather. As I know, it's really a, a very popular field, especially just, you know, machine learning in general is, is gaining a lot of popularity. And so that would be fantastic. I'll definitely bring that to our, our next board meeting as well. So Kelsey, before we end the podcast, we always ask our guests one last fun question. I want to ask you, if you could meet one famous person, alive or dead, who would it be? I would meet Alexander Hamilton from, of course, history, but I'm sure made very famous in, in pop culture from the, the musical Hamilton. Uh, I feel like I resonate a lot with his general work ethic and I love the story that he came from, you know, a small island with nothing and came to America and, you know, founded the financial systems that America is built on. I'm interested in personal finance in general, so I, I thought it was just a commendable story and his general work ethic for just going for what he wants is incredibly inspiring. And I definitely listened to that musical on repeat while finishing my final year of university <laughs> while writing my thesis. So it was a great motivator to, to get that submitted, to get my degree. I think I'm like one of the few people that has not seen that show yet. I really want to, but it's so difficult to get tickets all the time and they're so expensive. I just, I have to wait until it dies down a bit and everybody's already seen it and then I might be able to get an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. I definitely sold a lot of 
my like furniture and stuff before I was moving from between apartments to afford tickets uh, to see it in New York City and no regrets. So <laughs> no couch, but uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda in your ears. Uh, sounds like a fair trade <laughs> to me. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelsey. I guess we'll see you uh, at your PhD program in Oxford. We wish you the most success in that. And maybe we'll see you in space one day from our television set or whatever futuristic device we might be watching on. We're so grateful for you sharing your work experiences with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest. Thank you.